Buglers, we are live from Leicester Square Theatre on the 16th of September with Chris Addison and Alice Fraser. It might be our only London date of the year, so get your tickets now. Oh, get them at thebuglepodcast.com. That, that bit's important. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Welcome to Tiny Revolutions. I'm your host, Tiff Stevenson, and we take a deep dive into what art and political movements have been tiny revolutions for our guest. And this week, I'm very excited. One of my heroes is on the pod. I would say satirist, icon, comedian, producer, showrunner, all-round great guy. It's Armando Iannucci. Yay! I'll self-applaud me there. Um, Yeah. uh, Thank thank you. I feel under a tremendous amount of pressure now. Good. That's what I want. I just want you on edge from the beginning. Yeah, okay. (laughs) The podcast. That's an interesting question, actually, off Mm. the top. How would you describe what you do? Well, I mean, every morning I get up and I say to myself, what will I satirise today? <laughs> you know, just, just as a sort, it's just a sort of little exercise. Yes. How very French. <laughs> I know. I like to have a coffee in the morning and then take a pop at someone or something. Uh, <laughs> and then, you know, I might, uh, by lunchtime, I might skewer someone. Right. And then by the afternoon, I think it's just uh, just a complete kind of total attack and annihilation i like to annihilate some kind of institution or person by the end of each day sure a decimation's quite good yeah yeah or decimalization cut de- into 10 parts yes all <laughs> those things you know so <laughs> when we do get our blue passports uh and you know if if anything it's it's been worth it just for that uh <laughs> i i would put you know satirist and decimator on my <laughs> on where it says occupation even though it never actually did ever say that on your passport for some reason this myth has grown up that you put your occupation on your passport there I love you are. It. i'm already satirizing the institutions of passports yeah, to see I know. to see how yeah. It's inherent. You can't help it. Yeah. It's in your DNA. <laughs> it's in my DNA. Yeah. Well, uh, speaking of your DNA, how did you become <laughs> this? Was this because you're excellent um, and we'll dive into the work. But I want to know, ha- was this by design or was it happy accident, this career of yours? Good heavens. I mean, I was always, it's a number of things. You know, I was always a huge fan of radio comedy and I tended to go towards the topical comedy or like news quiz or, or just bonkers comedy like Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. So I was always a radio comedy fan. Um, but I think also, I don't know whether there's an element of, you know, growing up in a sort of a, an Italian in Scotland and being part of that. Are you are you part of the society you're in? Are you part of the culture and the, com- the country you're in? Or are you to one side of it, that sense of being neither in or out, but halfway in? The, the hokey-cokey uh, approach to <laughs> ethnicity, you know, so, so it kind of gave you a sense of being able to kind of step back from something at, at all times. So if I was at a very Scottish um, occasion, like a Cayley, like a, like a, you know, Hogmanay or Cayley or something, part of me would be thinking, this is a bit odd. But also if I went to a very Italian occasion like a big Italian wedding part of me would be thinking this is a bit odd you know now I don't know whether that is part of you know just my upbringing or whether it's just me whether you know <laughs> just wherever I go part of me is thinking this is a bit odd um you know but I always gravitated towards I loved any film that had a big kind of satirical uh, you know, to looked at the world as a whole and, and then analysed it, you know, things like Dr. Strangelove or Brazil and things like that. 
But uh, but to kind of completely negate my very first uh, <laughs> statement, I don't actually see myself as a satirist. I always feel that that kind of. Do you think that, it's a bit of an old fashioned word? Exactly. Like I was about to say it kind of kind of makes me makes you think that I'm in black and white and, you know, impersonating <laughs> Harold Macmillan in some smoke-filled kind of basement cabaret in the 60s or something, you know, and, 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 and I never felt that really. I always see myself as someone who just wants to make funny things. I like variety. I like variety. And also, I just hate labels. That's the thing. I just hate labels. I, I, I think any attempt to identify someone by a particular thing they do or, you know, where they're from or their voice or their name or, or anything, I find terribly limiting. Um, and also satirist kind of does imply it is a kind of occupation and that therefore, <laughs> you know, I should fairly satirise everyone. Do you know what I mean? I should not have any favourites and I should not have any specific kind of targets. I should be scattergunning evenly against left, right and centre, you know. And I sort of think that's a bit, that's slightly uh, neutering, I think. <laughs> you know, I yes. think, you know, as anyone who writes or, or who writes, whether it's, you know, comedy or drama, I think you write about what you uh, are drawn towards, what interests you, but also what makes you angry, you know. And I'm not made angry by everyone. Uh, I think most people, <laughs> and this is something you learn with age, uh, Tiff, uh, <laughs> most people are quite nice. Most people are quite nice, you know. So it's not if like given I... given the chance, we'll do the right thing. We'll do the right thing. You know, we'll, 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 we'll offer some help and, you know, we'll show you the directions if you ask them nicely. And it's not about that. And I also kind of shy away from identifying a group as evil and identifying a group as good because I think that's terribly easy and terribly lazy. And I think what I'm interested in is just human human nature. What what makes certain people do the wrong thing, you know? You're talking about nuance, Armando. We don't I know. do nuance anymore. Nuance. <laughs> it's a very 19th, maybe 18th century uh, expression and indeed ideal <laughs> That somehow in the twenty first century has uh, has disappeared. I don't mean that. I'm being nuanced. <laughs> <laughs> well, speaking of you not liking labels, I am going to yeah. ask you to apply one to yourself now okay. because uh, well, one of the interesting questions I ask people on this is the class question: like, where does it even exist anymore, and where would you where would you place yourself? Well, that, that's an interesting thing because I've always felt. I don't know, you know, I think people have me down as some Oxbridge educated, you know, clever clog independent school posh git. <laughs> not me, not and me. No, and there are some <laughs> elements of that, but, you know, I grew up in a two bedroom tenement flat with six of us in Glasgow until, you know, my teens, my father, who, who died when I was quite young, um, his fortunes, he was, a, he was a small businessman, really, and, you know, occasionally did all right and occasionally didn't and was bankrupt. And so, you know, we experienced, you know, the highs and lows of, 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 of that. And also I think that thing I touched on, you know, being, being from a, a first and second generation migrant family, I don't think you quite know where exactly you fit in that scale. It is a very, very British thing that, you know, identifying someone by the tone of their voice and by what job they do. When I worked in America, I was, I mean, clearly there are other divisive problems in America, more to do with race. I, uh, but I was very struck by how unclass conscious America is, you know. You know, if you look at Fauci, Fauci, the kind of, yeah. you know, I compare him with Chris Whitty. You know, we, we like Chris Whitty because he sounds like a doctor. You know, he has that kind of... Whereas Fauci's very kind of, you know, New York kind of, uh, you know, he's all that, you know. But but in America, that's irrelevant. It's like, how good are you at your job? How good are you as a person? How effective are you in his job as a communicator? You know, those are the things that come into play. There is a bit more of a sense that you can sort of come from anywhere yeah. and be anyone, no matter how humble your beginnings, and that's celebrated in America. Absolutely. Whereas in yeah. the UK, we no. love inherited wealth. That's what we respect, these families. Mm -hmm. You know, we have a monarchy. So, mm -hmm. you know, that is a very different, it feels class-based. We don't like new money, so to speak, and America's full of 
new money <laughs> and and people yeah so it's it's very it's freeing i think to be well i found that you know going over to america to make veep which is you know a, a comedy about american politics and i went over thinking well we'll just be shot because you know imagine a french company came to the uk to make a a comedy about British politics. We sort of think, <laughs> yeah. what were you doing coming into it? You know, we, we'll do it. And I thought that's <laughs> the reaction we would get when we went over to America. But, in it, you know, if anything, they said, no, it kind of needed someone to come from outside because we're so partisan. It's so divisive in America. You grow up in a Republican household or a Democrat household or a, a red state or a blue state. You know, it kind of needed someone to come outside. And, and also the fact that, you know, America just welcomes anyone with ideas. You know, it's just, we'll take it. We'll take it. We don't really mind where you're from or where you come from, you know. It helps if you say you worked at the BBC, actually, because they love, love the BBC. You know, it goes back to that thing of, you know, BBC is almost like royalty. Yes. In America, yeah. isn't it? You know. So they wanted you as a, like a neutral observer almost, or yeah. someone from outside of the system is able to comment yeah. on the system better than someone in but it. But it, it made me re uh, appreciate, you know, why America is so successful as a country, despite, you know, what the last four years have, have done in terms of the language used, is because it welcomes people from outside, you know. It's actually... It, that's a good thing because it's terribly efficient, you know, because you're utilising the best skills everywhere rather than limiting the amount of skills you can draw upon. Did you feel in Glasgow, did you feel that like strong sense of your Scottish identity? Like, did you get your political views and leanings from your parents? What are your sort of earliest political memories? Well, um, it, it's interesting. I mean, my father, we didn't discuss politics much at home, but my father, strangely enough, had a very intensely political background. At the age of about 16 or 17, he started writing for an anti-fascist newspaper just wow. outside Naples, you know, you know, challenging Mussolini, when it was a dangerous thing to do. And then during the war, he became a partisan, uh, fighting against the fascists, against... Mussolini and the Nazis and had to take on another name and, and take to the hills because, you know, if they knew what your name was, they might round up your family and, and so on. So and then immediately after the war, he, he left Italy. And I remember saying to him, you know, why did you leave it? And he said, because I couldn't forgive them for for going fascist. Um, and yet he never voted. You know, he never took up British citizenship. So in elections, he never... And I said, why don't you do it? Why don't you vote? And he said, well, the last election I remember, Mussolini got in, you know, so... He's <laughs> scarred by it, you know, yeah. He's scarred by it. And the only other time I remember him getting emotional about it was... It was at the time in the 70s when the world at war was being shown. Uh, this sort of amazing 26-part series about the Second World War. And I remember when the episode about the concentration camps came on, he just got up and left the room. But on his way out, he said, I can't watch this, but you have to watch this. But I can't watch this. Um, and, oh. you know, and then, you know, he died when I was about 16, 17. So I never really, you know, as I'm sort of waking up to that, I never really got the chance to kind of question him more about that, you know. But it did... Um, I mean, his great thing was education and how knowledge. And so, you know, we were encouraged to to read and to, um, you know, in, engage and, and so on. That gave me goosebumps. That was, <laughs> that's, uh, both because it's so beautiful and it's so mm. poignant and powerful of kind of like, I lived this, so I don't need to see it again. But you no, need I to know. see it so you don't live it. Yeah. And my mum afterwards, you know, after his dad told me about the time that he got a medal, he got a medal post-war from the Italian government, which was presented to him in, in Glasgow, but he lost it. <laughs> it was in the back of a car and someone <laughs> stole it, you know. Uh, <laughs> my mum's experience is different because she was born in Glasgow, but her parents were Italian. They came over in the 1920s, again, after the First World War, for economic reasons, you know. The, Glasgow was a big shipbuilding area and a port and people would, you know, travel either to, to the Britain or to America by ship. And so the boat would come in in Glasgow. And first, once the first Italian kind of migrants came and opened up pizza shops and, and, and fish and chip shops and, and ice cream, you know, decent food or, you know, interesting food, you know, there was work there because there was sort of enthusiasm for that food. So they would then report back to their community in, in Italy and say, come over here. I mean, they love it. Um, but... 
during the Second World War, all, all Italian nationals in the UK were rounded up and interned. So my yes. mum's experience of the Second World War was of visiting her father in an internment camp on a Sunday, you know. So therefore, they grew up with a sense of, you know, do we belong? How do we fit in? You know, we're seen as suspicious by the people Absolutely. in the country we, you know, we exactly. chose. And therefore, well, my father talked in a very, very thick, strong Italian accent. They both decided just to speak English to us, not to speak Italian to us as a sort of you must grow up feeling, you know, sort of integrated with the people around you, which, you know, my mum later regretted because actually, you know, the joy of being able to speak another language is something that, you know, the absence of which embarrasses me, especially when I'm in Italy. You know, I've, I've had to take several films out, you know, you do the kind of festival circuit with your movies before everything shut down. And I, I'm embarrassed at, at Italian questions and answers. I have to do it through a translator. <laughs> you know, I just think there's a road not travelled here that I should have travelled. So who were your influences? Well, comedically. Comedically, yeah, and filmmakers. Yeah, everything. So, I mean, I read an awful lot and I was very blessed by just down the road, a new library opened up. Hillhead Library in Byers Road, which had a massive record collection. And so that's why I got my love of classical music. I was just able to explore classical music without, at no cost, which was great. But then also, you know, reading, I just read everything. I read Graham Greene, Agatha Christie. And then Charles Dickens, I gravitated towards Charles Dickens, who I found very funny, actually, and angry. And, you know, uh, and just an amazing writer. We have him down as this kind of long-winded Victorian who writes about mud and fog and stuff, which he does, but also just really funny. Funny and like almost like more like soaps as well. Yes. And the way that his kind of villains are. Yes. I'm I'm with you in I'm, I'm a huge fan of Dickens and yeah. occasionally in stand-up shows I've referenced him, specifically Wemmick, actually, in Great Expectations. Yes. yes. Because I have a lot of jewellery, so I like the portable property, <laughs> yeah. as he describes it, you know. Put your money in portable property. Portable property. There's a guy in, I think it's the old Curiosity Shop, got a name that I'd, I would think would be changed in adaptations now because his name is Dick Swiveller. Um, <laughs> uh, I don't know, what was he thinking? But he has a, a kind of map. And every now and then in conversation, you'll see him just crossing a street out in the map. And it's basically a street, a map of all the streets he can't go down because he owes people money. <laughs> So every kind of day he has to work out a new route to where to get to and then how to get home, you know. And it's almost like a kind of stand-up comedy routine, really, or or, or a kind of... There's something Chaplin-esque about it as well. Um, so that Buster Keaton I'm a huge fan of. His just command of visual technique in film is amazing. Now, this is, this is the tricky one because I always was a huge fan of Woody Allen. right. But now it's just so I just try not to think about it. About five or six years ago, I was asked by the um, the National Film Theatre to, to present a film that I really like and talk about it and then screen it. And I chose Stardust Memories by Woody Allen, which is the one he did after Manhattan. And it was all a bit weird and experimental and black and white and really, I mean, it's, it's extraordinary in terms of how experimental it is for someone who was, had won all the Oscars and was to just go in that direction. And um, I made the mistake of screening it without having actually checked it back in the last 20 years. And it's just full of references to, like, having affairs with teenagers and people underage right. and his daughter and stuff. And I, I, was in, I was sitting in the cinema, having given it this huge kind of build-up, and then sat back in the cinema to, to watch it, just thinking, oh, my God. And it's sort of interesting how you, maybe as you're growing up, maybe as you're you're sort of, part of you is filtering out these things, which at the time feel a bit weird or a bit don't make any sense. But, you know, the young you is going, but that, anyway, that's not funny. So I wouldn't deal with that aspect of it, you know. And then you look at Manhattan and it's about Woody Allen having an, an affair, a relationship with a 17-year-old, you know. And it's sad because it's, it's sort of, you feel you've lost someone in a way that you that you knew very well. Because, you know, when you grow up, those people who affect you culturally... You know, you, you, they're not part of the family, but they are kind of, you develop some kind of emotional relationship with their work. And and, yeah. and therefore to have to then start questioning that, you know, 
is 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 hard. I mean, the other person who was a huge influence was Billy Connolly. And I've had a chance to say this to him, in that, you know, he, he and I both went to the same primary school, which was St. Peter's Catholic Boys School in Partick. And, <laughs> you know, and so much division there. In the, they, there were two, there was a girls' school was like several blocks down and there, but also it was the Catholic school and whatever. And, um, but I grew up, I was there when Billy Connolly was becoming famous in Glasgow and in Scotland, you know, so his albums were selling and he did this amazing routine about the uh, the crucifixion in which, you know, Jesus has a Glaswegian accent and, you know, urinates on the Roman centurion for not giving him any wine from the cross, you know, and it's totally... And I remember at the school, the teacher saying, you must not, you know, we were passing round cassette tapes of it oh, to each other. brilliant. But the teacher saying, you must not listen to Billy Connolly. You know, it's wrong. It's, you know, it's sinful to listen to Billy Connolly. Then he got famous on Parkinson and became a big, you know, UK celeb and then international celeb. So what happened? He was invited back to the school. So, you know, as a hero. And so that taught me about institutional uh, <laughs> hypocrisy. <laughs> yeah, yeah. The earliest lesson you could have of yeah, it yeah. at the time, how groundbreaking that would have been. All of that stuff yeah, about absolutely. you know, like you're saying, having yeah. having Jesus being Glaswegian. I know, I know. A Ouija Jesus. Yeah, he's walking around the streets, but also he's such he's part of the f the fabric of um kind of like Ivor Cutler, I suppose. Like yeah, he's funny and the, it, funny. Well, I suppose Ivor, it's it's like a universal, but it's so deeply scottish well that's it isn't it it's not running away from your your culture it's leaning into it but by leaning into it you kind of make it universal you know you 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 tell these stories but because they're so specific i think people from outside that environment can identify with them you know because they see them as genuine you know and also he's 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 sort of groundbreaking in this is why he was voted the comedians you know the stand-up stand-up in how he does his comedy, because he ha he doesn't come on and tell you his his five gags about Thatcher and then his ten gags about you know parties and stuff like that. He comes on and he just starts apparently rambling, and and then it's you know I remember seeing him uh, in the eighties. It was at the o Oxford Apollo, and he came on. And he said, uh, "I'm going to speak for about two and a half hours, and I've only got one joke." And it's not very good. And he then spoke for two and a half hours, uninterrupted, hysterical, which ended with the punchline that wasn't very good, uh, you know. <laughs> but he has this habit of like, it's almost like every performance is just for you. You know, you, you, you feel he couldn't have said it that way the day before or the next day. And I did, I did ask him, you know, how, how, he, how does he do it? And he says, you know, he's got a map in his head of all the topics but he doesn't quite know until he goes on how he's going to get from one topic to another. It just depends how it's going. And that's what gives you know? it the free form. That gives that it that kind free of shape. form, you know. There's probably a character of yours, you know, obviously Malcolm Tucker in the thick of it is um, he's someone who has this kind of almost like ranty stream of consciousness yes. kind of, yes. and you're just getting smacked about by... Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> by like by like gags or I just like how natural they are in that no one's ever going towards a joke because they wouldn't be because they're in jobs where they yeah. that's not their job exactly so it's you know the, the, the trick is to sort of I mean you know well you, you'll know from from having worked you know on, on Avenue 5 a lot of it is about the writing process you know months of it but then once we get yes. into production it's about making it feel like it's not been written it's all about getting the cast to absorb the material and make it their own and see where else they bring to it. And then on set, how we, the performance should feel like it's, it's got its own natural trajectory, really. And, and, and I remember, you know, very early on, I think it was possibly when, when doing the thing of it, actually in the edit, taking jokes out because sometimes in the scene, you know, the atmosphere is so tense or so specific that to then crowbar in a funny line ruins the scene. Right. And yet, so if you take the line out, but just keep the look of puzzlement on someone's face, that's funnier than the line that they were going to say, you know? <laughs> and it's about, it's about that, really. Sometimes, you know, if we've got time, I'd say to the, um, the camera operators, you know, let's shoot this scene again, but this time concentrate on people who aren't talking. 
So they'll do a whole pass on people listening and reacting. And sometimes those are the funniest moments of the final edit, just the looks on people's faces of like, he can't be saying that, or, oh my God, what's she got in her <laughs> hand? You know, it's all those things, you know, or people just looking embarrassed and trying to turn the other way. Um, those are the f- things that, so it's about trying to find the truth of the moment, really. And if that means actually on the day you end up jettisoning quite a lot of what you've written because actually on the day it doesn't feel authentic, then fine, because actually we wouldn't have got there without the script. You need all of that prep. Yeah, yeah. And sometimes I say, let's do the scene again, but sort of do it in your own way. And it's amazing nine times out of ten when we do that. It is the script. Right. But the lines just come out in slightly a different order. You know, (laughs) It's, it's because actually in the heat of the moment, the actor is then searching for what feels like the best line to use at that point, even though it might yes. be scheduled for the next page or something. <laughs> so the the lines, so it's actually you end up with the script, but it just feels much more alive. And also the cast need that safety net of knowing that if all else fails, you know, we've got the script and we've, we'll shoot that, you know, it's just to get that. And in the end, I think it's only an extra 10% of the final cut, just stuff that, just emerges from the script, you know, in the heat of the moment, you know, because I do like it. And you go back to, you know, who are my influences. I also like people like Robert Altman, who who managed to do these huge ensemble pieces that feel very naturalistic. But when you analyse them, you know, they're very well structured and they're very well plotted and written, but they don't feel like that. They feel like you're just immersing yourself in this kind of spontaneous world around you. 
because they're all characters in the book. There's no like kind of statement made about it or anything. It just is. It just is. And also, it, it, you know, if, if, these, if these people are good at what they do, you know, an actor who's good at what they do, you don't start thinking, yeah, but during the day there's someone else. You know, you just think that's the character, <laughs> you know. <laughs> and it's something that's been going on in theatre for the last 20 years, you know. But then, you know, funny enough, so that was the process of making it. But afterwards, I got kind of, almost kind of angry, maybe not just at everyone else, but at myself, and the fact that why haven't we been doing that, you know? Why have we been saying, especially since we do as a country make all these period dramas, why have we been saying to a group of actors, this isn't for you, you know? Why can't I draw on 100% of the acting community that's out there? And as we're seeing, you know, there's so many, especially in the last five, six years, so many amazing young actors, brilliant actors. You know, why should we be saying to them, yeah, but you can't be in this because, you know. Yeah, you can only be in something that's as if you didn't exist. Like, yeah. it's so insane. Yeah. And also, London's always been... Yeah, absolutely. And Dickens' yeah. London yeah. Was, was multicultural, right? Yes, absolutely. And it should feel... And I wanted the film to feel modern in that in London in 1840, that was the height of the Industrial Revolution. So it should feel like arriving in Manhattan in the 20s. You know, it's just... This is going places, this place. Yes, it's frightening, but also, you know, you can... It's, it's a bubbling hive of activity and energy and so on. But I remember Dev saying to me, you know, 10 years ago, I'd be playing the guy at the back holding the tray of tea in a film like this. Wow. You know, and I just thought that's shocking. He's so phenomenal in it. When you see him, you can't imagine anyone no. else playing playing that role. There was a magical moment. It's not in the film. It was in our sort of lighting and camera test where we, for the first time, we got everyone in their hair and makeup and costume. The lighting was all set, you know, we, we uh, and we shot it. There was no sound, so we just shot it. It was just a chance to see, just to set the tone, really. It was just done in a studio. But when Dev came out and he had a kind of hat and his suit and waistcoat and stuff, and he sort of bumbled around, and I just thought, it's Chaplin. It's like... And watching the footage back, of course, because there was no sound, it made it even more feel like... And I was so touched when Mark Commode said that Dev's performance was Chaplin-esque. Yes. Because we talked on set about that and silent comedy and Buster Keaton and um, and he's an amazing physical performer, you know. So on set, I'd say, why don't as you run past that ornament, why don't you just accidentally hit it with your foot as you go past? And he did it first take, you know, and it was really funny, you know. All his falls and his kind of trying to fight and then falling over, you know. He's a naturally, instinctively visually funny physical comedian bit of a clown bit of a clown and then he turns out to be an impressionist because the script called for david to start mimicking people like you're right and then dev came up with these wonderful impressions of the rest of the cast so we just put them <laughs> in then it turned out that jay who plays the young david jay raj also was an amazing mimic so you know we could keep the thing going from childhood to kind of adulthood this uh, element of mimicry because what we decided with the ca the character of David was to make him Dickens and Dickens' children talked about how Dickens absorbed the kind of the peculiarities of those he was speaking with and then would go up to his room and speak into the mirror as them just try and get their character make them come alive in front of him you know so. well it did and I've never researched this but I always feel like David Copperfield does feel like the character that is closest to Dickens writing about himself. Absolutely, yes. And it's a very autobiographical book. You know, it's about a person growing up, sad childhood. David's story about going off at the age of 12 to work in a factory was Dickens' story that he kept quiet. He didn't tell anyone about, but he put it in the book. And, and, and in the book, David becomes a successful writer. So clearly it's, you know, it's, it's, there are elements of, of Dickens there. It wears its comedy so lightly. There's such a a lightness of touch in the film which I really thought was great about it because it's funny but there's never any point that it's a forced funny it's all the funny that comes from the comp the beautiful combination of Ianucci and 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 Dickens <laughs> oh, you know you. I mean, so who'd have thought did you think when you were like you know mm. in Glasgow growing up no. did you think that that would one day be in your future no no I mean a lot of these things are unplanned there never is a plan Going right back to doing my very first thing of my own on the hour was just spawned from going on a training course at the BBC when I was a radio producer and sitting there with lots of other, you know, documentary 
factual news readers and reporters and features producers. And we were asked to get into a group and come up with a magazine show, a 10 minute magazine show. And I, I thought, well, I, I want to make a comedy. So I made a spoof magazine show and I used a newsreader and I used a, you know, and we interviewed people as if for real. And then I cut it up to make it sound like it. Uh, um, and that became on the hour, but there was no plan. You know, it just happened. And then on the hour, we came up with the sports reporter, Alan Partridge. It all went to telly. Again, there was no plan. It just, you know, I thought these shows would be very culty shows, but I didn't expect them to take off. And, you know, and 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 um, and these things just happen. You know, you don't, you can't, if you sat down and tried to plan it, you'd go mad because you'd never, you'd never achieve your plan, really. <laughs> One of the questions that I've that is sort of asked a bit on the first was like, do you believe comedy and satire can make a difference and should it? I mm. mean, obviously you do because, mm. you know, how much do we think it is the job of comedy and art in the broader sense to make these statements and make a change? Well, I, I'm already bridling at the phrase, the job of comedy, you know, because again, right. I, I don't, I, you know, I think you're on a hiding to nothing if you think your comedy is going to, change people the way people vote or whatever and i don't think that's so funny it, first I, well it's always funny uh, first it can you know i think if it allows people to rethink their views or to examine them again or just interests them in a topic then then that's great but i think the thing i the stuff i write is it usually arises out of just my own interest or my own frustration or my own anger or my own you know whatever rather than a desire to kind of smash the system and change the way people vote. I think if you want to do that, you should become a journalist or a politician or, yes. you know, campaign or join a, you know, an organization or a pressure group or, you know, that's, that's for that. But I, I don't think, and I think people can see it as well. I think people can, I mean, for example, you know, Ken Loach has very much a sp specific political view and that determines the type of films he makes. But when you watch the films, when you watch the films, for example, I, Daniel Blake, he's not running a subtitle saying, you know, vote Labour or become a socialist <laughs> yeah, underneath yeah, it. Yeah. He, he, he's, he's, he's a filmmaker at that point and he's drawing you into uh, the power of the story and the, um, and the effectiveness and the reality, the truth of it, you know. Um, which is why I remember saying, you know, something like I, Daniel Blake, it's a sort of film that actually people in local government and in various departments of government should watch, not because it's Ken Loach preaching to you how to vote, but as a, just as, a, as an eye-opener on what the situation is like, um, uh, you know, yeah. at, at the end of, you know, a, a, a law or a, a kind of policy is made here, but by the time it gets passed on, to and down to the local community level this is the this is the raw experience of it so therefore yes. having seen that you know what could you do about it yeah yeah they often it's they're often so far removed from it yeah i mean we saw this over the summer with the school meals i think yes yes i think marcus rashford mm. using his platform mm in a really positive way so i guess that's yes. what i and a very smart way what i liked about his approach was it was a very smart way because he wasn't doing a kind of uh, the tories you don't get it you know he, he was basically saying you're in power okay so i acknowledge that you're in power can i speak to you <laughs> about how you can yes. use that power rather than let's wait until they're out and five years time we can really make a difference because actually all those children he's talking about will have grown up in five years time and his his urgency was about now really and, and it's about that and it goes back to what i've seen right at the start about labels i hate it when people just label others as different and therefore separate and therefore who mustn't be engaged you know, yeah. I think you can become and, and you again, the American experience is much more interesting of, of ways. But people who can campaign on the community level with those in power, whether or not they're of the same party or not, but try, trying to work out ways in which you can actually achieve a specific change. You know, the thick of it arose out of my, you know, frustration and anger at the invasion of Iraq, Blair and Bush going into Iraq. And, you know, despite the fact everyone was saying this will be a terrible disaster, every expert, every, you know, every opinion who had any kind of knowledge of the situation, and yet it happened. And I just thought, how did something like that happen? So how is power used in the UK and in, in Whitehall? 
that someone at the centre can drive through something that everyone else is against. And so I thought, well, let's make a show that shows what's going on behind the scenes. But I didn't want to make it an angry tirade against Blair and Iraq. I wanted it to be about, okay, let's see if this can be an eye-opener into how government works, irrespective of what the government is. What are the, but that also means what are the pressures we as a public put on politicians? What are the pressures the media put on politicians? As well as what are the pressures and the flaws that politicians uh, bring upon themselves when they try and tackle you know, issues? So, so, so it was about that, really. The big thing I took from when I'd started researching how Whitehall operated was how much policy is, is, um, is pushed by people who are very, very young. You know, people in their 20s are policy advisors. That was the big sort of eye-opener for me. And I think that is part of the problem in that, you know, policies can therefore become... It's more than a game. I wouldn't say they trivialise and see it as a game, but it's just an exciting kind of challenge, problem-solving. And therefore they forget, you know, what the consequences are. <laughs> like we're going right. to say, you know, <laughs> the people who have to go to the food banks because, you know, they're been sanctioned you know it's because they don't have that kind of it's life or death here they haven't been in that life or death situation yet yes you know it's like a game that's being played as opposed to yeah. acknowledging the real human cost yes yes because in the day-to-day -day of your job you're going in moving yeah. this chess piece and moving this piece but you're not able to see the board yeah you don't know and we have fewer people going into politics who have had another life beforehand you know People now go into politics, become an MP in their 30s rather than their 40s, you know. There's a very depressing, very good, but very depressing book by Isabel Hardman called Why We Get the Politicians We Deserve. And, and, and she's saying, sadly, the way MPs are selected are, they are the ones that have gone into politics at an early age. They are the ones who could afford to, you know, go out and campaign in a constituency where they know they're going to lose. You know, it so it becomes a very self-selecting thing, really. Uh, and also we have, the way government works here is that there are about 100, over 100 jobs that the Prime Minister can give to MPs in government. You know, so already you've, not, you've got the legislature, you know, slightly reluctant to take on the executive because there's jobs in it for them, you know. So they're going to be reluctant to, to question the government in what it's doing. And unfortunately, what's happening now in party politics is here is if you don't agree with the leader and the leader's position, then you have no seat at the table. So, you know, Boris Johnson got rid of anyone who was anti-Brexit and who didn't vote for the deal was, you know, not only out of government, but out of the parliamentary party. Right. And similarly, you know, it happened with Corbyn and it's happening with Keir Starmer. Those who d disagree with him are kind of edged out. It happened with Blair, it happened with Theresa May. It's very much, you know, I'm in charge now and therefore um, uh, I only have to deal with people who completely agree with me because I, I won. And I want, I want sycophants rather than... Yeah, I just want it to be an easier... I just, want, I just want decisions. If I make a decision, I just want to know what's going to happen and not be challenged, you know. And I think it's a subconscious thing. I don't think it's, uh, you know... But I think that's been the culture of the last sort of, 20, 25 years of, you know, as soon as someone is in power, they have total power, you know, even though they've only been elected, you know, the, a large minority will have voted for elsewhere. So they all come into power saying, I know people voted for me, but I want to be the prime minister of everybody or I want to be the leader of everybody. But then go on to just be the prime minister of those <laughs> who voted for them, you know. Yeah, yeah. And also, it doesn't make more practical sense. You know, if you're a politician... Um, and you need to win over people who didn't vote for you last time. That sort of indicates you've got to reach out to those some of those people at least who didn't vote for you last time, which involves hearing what why it is that they didn't vote for you. <laughs> you know, uh, um, so it's it starts to be sort of in the end self defeating to just restrict your kind of views, policies, language to those who are loyal. You know, because you're never going to expand, you know, your, yes. your support. So they call it reaching across the aisle in across America. Across the aisle in America. You know, and that's been disastrous for the last 10, 15 years in terms of in the Senate. Um, you know, and that, that the American Constitution is predicated on groups reaching out and compromising. But when they decide not to compromise, nothing happens. 
what are your personal tiny revolutions? And by that, I mean things that you've discovered or processes that make a huge difference to your life and your creative life. Because we always talk about how people start a day. Like Hemingway used to go for a walk and then write. Are there any, you know, are there any things that you do? Um, interesting. That's interesting. Because, I, I mean, the last 12 months has been so atypical, hasn't it? Yes. Uh, and it's hard to, I feel, I don't know whether you agree with this, it's very hard to write anything when we're living in a situation where we don't know what the world's going to no, look like on I the know. other side but and the other strange revolution is like every day you know i wake up thinking i've got so many things to do and then about two hours in i think yeah i don't have to do them today though do i you know <laughs> <laughs> yeah it kind of takes away our drive it does it's it's but numbing I, isn't I it i kind of like that in a way because maybe it's just because of the last 30 years have just been a bit so full on. I slowed down a bit, you know, when I hit about 40-ish. But I, I think my first 10 or 15 years, I was absurdly... Um, and, and, it, and it arises not out of ambition, but out of fear. Out of fear of the thing that you're doing might not happen anymore or might just be terrible. And therefore, there should be a, another thing that you've got on the go, that if this thing inevitably grinds to a pathetic halt you can switch to the next thing you know and you're not left kind of stumped as to what to do next and I kind of overcompensated for that by by just having lots of things you know and um, I tell you what no, an amazing revolution which has tried to force me to not do that anymore is I remember going to the Dickens Museum and there was a table out with photographs and portraits of Dickens. And because he became very famous at the age of 21, he was, you know, he was a celebrity. And it was like for every year of his life. And you saw him aged 19, 20, this sort of very angelic, kind of beautiful, golden locked kind of, you know, uh, you know, really creative genius about to... Uh, uh, and by the time he was like 45, his face just collapses. It just disintegrates. And then he only lived to about the age of 56. And he, what he did was, I think through fear of being poor again, he worked his socks off. He worked, he was writing novels, he was editing journals, he was lecturing, he was campaigning, he was putting on, you know, he was, he went mental. I mean, he went absolutely just extraordinary amount of effort and work. And you can see at the age of 45, his face, he just becomes an old man at 45 and watching that I just thought right I can't, I've got to not do that <laughs> I've got to slow down a bit you know it's hard if you come if you grow up if you grew up in a you know and I feel this there's a there's a mentality and that could go back to a class thing or you could say it's like when there's been points in your life where there hasn't been enough yeah and money has been scarce and if you've yeah. grown up in that poverty kind of mentality that mm. you you there isn't a, a low level fear that it's yeah. all going to go away and that you could be back. And also that freelance thing, and that you, you know, we're not we we don't work for a company or for an organization or you know. And there is that thing that you try not to think about because you'd go crazy if you did. But the freelance life does mean you genuinely don't know what you'll be doing in about two years' time or three years' time. Part of that makes it exciting, but also if you think too hard about it, terrifying in that you don't have a <laughs> You haven't got it mapped out. Yes. You know. Yeah, and I think as well, I, I'm recently in the last couple of years, I've really tried to find a balance with this because I felt like I was putting my happiness on hold constantly for this yeah. career. Yeah. Like constantly to have the thing of going, have I got the next thing? Did I get that though? And we've yeah. got a wedding to organise. Well, well, what if I'm doing Edinburgh? And what if I'm... I know, you get sucked into that thinking, yeah, yeah, I'm just going to do this thing and then then we can talk about the... Yeah, no, but before I do this thing, I'm just going to set up the next thing, you know. And, and it can become all-consuming. So actually, you know, the last 12 months, even though we've been writing Avenue 5 and, you know, uh, gearing up towards shooting it, it, it has been, a for me, a personal opportunity to just step back and, and, you know, ask yourself, what are you doing this for? What are you getting out of it? Uh, which isn't to say you've got to pack it all in, but just just reset your kind of set of values, really priorities is armando happy dare i say yeah like I that, mean, I, that I mean, kind of a question yeah. that worth asking yourself going is this making my life you know joyous exciting well, i happy? kind of never wake up thinking oh my god why am i doing this i mean occasionally right. you know if, if you're about to go on live <laughs> television or something you know or you've got something to write for the end of that day 
you do think that. But genuinely, and and genuinely, I have managed to get away with no, without thinking it's a job, you know. Because I always did grow up thinking I don't want to work as as part of an organization as you know i i hate the idea of having a boss i hate you know yes I that's just, why all of us do this that's why everybody people all... want to come to, i remember <laughs> in an interview stephen fry being asked you know why have you never set up your own production company and he said yeah i see these people who've set up these comedians who set up production companies and they have an office and a desk and then they worry about the vat and then and then i think but that's what i went into comedy to avoid <laughs> having a job like that. you know <laughs> we make people laugh which is a joy, yeah. you know. I mean, it's very infectious, you know, to to hear laughter. It's a it's a good thing. And you know, when people say, "Thank you very much for all the funny stuff," I think, "Great, that's 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 all I need really to to keep me going." In that, you know, if you've if you've done something that makes people laugh. Thank you so much for coming on Tiny Revolutions. Uh, um, it was everything I hoped it would be. It was funny, insightful. Uh, beautiful and touching. Thank you very um, much. <laughs> yeah, it's a lot. It's a lot of. It's a lot to pack into a morning, isn't it? Wow. <laughs> Genuine compliments. Yeah. Yeah. Quickly before you go, is there anything coming up that people can go watch or see? I mean, obviously Avenue Five on HBO. I've got nothing. No, I've got the first <laughs> film I did in the loop is is still up on BBC iPlayer with uh, Peter Quaid and James Gandolfini. Uh, I love that. Uh, difficult, difficult, lemon difficult. I think I remember right, that yes. line from yes. In the Loop. <laughs> Which was Great a line. Films. There's a line we came up with at the very end of the take. Actually, it wasn't in the script. We were looking oh, really? for a line. Yeah, yeah. Anyway, there you go. Well, that's uh, again a little insight into the yeah. process there of of making uh, of making a film. Thank you so much for coming on to Tiny Revolutions. Thank you. And, uh, Pleasure. Yeah. Cheers. Bye bye. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.